after the babies were born, everything just hurt even more because I, you know, every loss was through their eyes. Every, you know, every new atrocity was the world that they were going to inherit. And I didn't know how to keep them safe in it. This is It's Okay That You're Not Okay. And I'm your host, Megan Devine. This week on It's Okay, the incredible Valerie Kaur. The activist and best-selling author of See No Stranger joins me to talk about love, action, and the power of wonder in the face of impossible things. Settle in, everybody. An incredible conversation is coming your way right after this first break. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness. Kick back and spread some positivity into the world. From smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports, on stages, and at the box office, women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to Women Take the Mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs, and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. Before we get started, one quick note. While we cover a lot of emotional, relational territory in our time here together, this show is not a substitute for skilled support with a licensed mental health provider or for professional supervision related to your work. Hey, friends. So you know how sometimes parents say, like, I love all my children, but this one is extra special? I feel that way about this week's guest. All of the guests in this season are stunning, and some of them... Some of them brought me medicine I didn't even know I needed. Valerie Kaur was that medicine for me. 
Valerie Kaur is a renowned civil rights leader. She's a lawyer, award-winning filmmaker, educator, author of the best-selling See No Stranger, and founder of the Revolutionary Love Project. She's a daughter of Punjabi Sikh farmers in California. Her work has ignited a national movement to reclaim love as a force for justice. You can see why I love her, right? Reclaiming love as a force for justice. In this week's episode, we cover activism, wonder, horror, grief, acts of violence, acts of justice, parenting in an age of rampant school violence, healing family wounds, building true community, I mean on and on. We also cover why fighting for love and pleasure is always going to be more sustainable than fighting against hate. So much of our conversation explores just how much grief we've had to metabolize as individuals, as families, as communities over these last several years. I don't want to say too much more about it. I want to get right to it. I hope this conversation restores something in you the way it restored something in me. I can't wait to hear what you think. Now, one brief content note, Valerie's neighborhood had some construction going on while we were talking, so there is a not insignificant amount of background noise, more background noise than is usual in an episode. So listen through that background noise for the goodness, though. That goodness is all around you. Okay, here's my conversation with author and activist Valerie Cower. Valerie, I am so glad you're here. I'm kind of ridiculously excited about this. So there are so many places that we could begin. And honestly, like I was telling you before we started rolling that I've spent the last few days like reading you and listening to you and watching you giving talks. And there there are so many, there are so many starting places. I was having a hard time like choosing one as an entry point. You opened your book with wonder. So I'd kind of like to start with wonder. You wrote, wonder is where love begins but the failure to wonder is the beginning of violence. Can we start there? My four-year-old daughter is downstairs with my mother so that we could be having this conversation. She's on spring break. And it's only through her did I begin to understand that wonder is our birthright, that we don't need to learn how to wonder. It's just we have to remember what we once knew you know, we walk to the beach every Friday morning. And once I understood this, I was like, okay, I just need to protect this capacity that she already has as she's looking up and marveling at everything that I can't see because I'm just so focused on getting to where we need to go. And so I started to make up the song for her. It's become our song now. Ants on a leaf, birds in the sky, sweet little bee, trees so high. Wonder Baby says, wow, whoa. You're a part of me. I don't yet know. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> and then we do this for everything. We do this for the people walking by. You're a part of me. I don't yet know. We do this for the people we see who might be in pain or on the street. And then we start to do this with herself, you know, with, with ourselves. When when she's feeling angry or sad, it's like, oh, th- these emotions, this, this is a part of you. You do not yet know. So you can wonder about it and let it expand you. And so this this practice of wonder that my daughter has taught me has been the way i have learned how to care for her she's changes so fast that i have to wonder about her every day to figure out how to care for her how to meet where she needs and 
as I'm looking at the world, this aching, noisy, complicated, bleeding world, I'm realizing how much love comes from that willingness to wonder when it's hard. And that if we want to expand our capacity to love beyond our inner circles to others who may not look like us, even to our opponents, to ourselves who we too often neglect, that 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 means to be brave with our wonder because when we shut down our capacity to wonder, that's where neglect or indifference or violence is allowed to thrive. So, so much of my work now around building this movement around revolutionary love is really returning people to their inner capacity to wonder like my daughter does. And so much of life is sort of designed to grind that wonder out of us. It is. It's like it's like this flame that just the the hot winds of the world want to extinguish it, want to put it out. And so how do I teach her that, no, this capacity to wonder is not your weakness or it's not naive. It's not something that you have to let fall away in order to be strong or serious or make it in this world or be powerful. No, this capacity to wonder, to be vulnerable, to let yourself orient to the world through the eyes of wonder, to be to let humility be the way that you move. Mm, it is actually her greatest superpower. <laughs> and it could be each of ours. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to, as you're describing that, I'm like, this is really the root and the foundation. And you you had, you mentioned something in there, the hot winds won't touch you, which of course we know from your book is a prayer from your grandfather. Yes. What is the prayer there? The hot winds cannot touch you. It's from the Sikh faith, my faith tradition. And my grandfather would sing it to me every night before I went to sleep or made me make me recite it when I went to school as he drove us to school. And I'm so glad he did because only now do I look back and realize that it was the secret to his courage. He would recite this, you know, when he was in the face of death many times in his life. And it's the Shabbat I recited when I was on the birthing table, <laughs> when it felt like dying and I had to push my daughter into the world. And it goes like this. And it goes on and on. And it's the hot winds cannot touch you. You are shielded by love. I'm wondering what would happen if each of us could place our hand on our hearts and identify that space inside of us where wonder lives, the root of love. If we could feel that space inside of us and imagine it as a sovereign space that Nothing could touch, not the noise of the world, not the chaos, not the atrocities, not the despair, not the attacks. Nothing can touch the sovereign space inside of you. If we can let ourselves touch that space and live in that space and grow in that space, then perhaps that's the secret to becoming more courageous than we could have ever known ourselves to be. You know, so often in certainly in Western culture, we talk about things like wonder, we talk about things like bravery that as though they're the absence of pain, mm. right? That you have to overcome all of these difficult things in order to access like that, you know, be a big girl, be strong, like access your strength and overcome this pain or this suffering. And and one of my absolute favorite things about you is you don't do that. <laughs> you don't sugarcoat things. So when you're talking about, can we rest in that place of wonder as a sovereign place of strength? That's not necessarily a place without pain. No. You know, it's, it's not transcending pain or bypassing pain. It's inhabiting your body so fully that you're both able to touch the pain and be aware of the space around it. You know, what really taught me this was, it was being on that birthing table 
mm. with my daughter. I, I'm getting, I'm talking about her a lot right now because I'm weaning her also. <laughs> and so I'm feeling very mm. emotional as I'm grieving this intimacy that we had. And so I'm going back and thinking a lot about her coming into the world and what she taught me and how her, her labor was very, very, the pregnancy was very difficult. I had hyperemesis. I threw up every hour on the hour for four months and was in a wheelchair for the rest of the time. And so when her labor came, it itself was like the, the culmination of a lot of pain <laughs> and it was rapid. It was a four hour labor from zero to 10 in four hours. And when it's that rapid, the pain is so intense. And I don't even think there was time to consider medication. It was just, it was that. And the only thing, you know, that got me through it was there was a moment, you know, when it was just the, the, the contractions are thunderous. It's like bone crushing pain. <laughs> And I needed to gulp air. And so I, you know, I thought maybe it would, I would go to my ancestors like I did when my, when my son's labor. I thought maybe I would go to the sea because this is my place of, of rest. But no, I, I went to a meadow. I was in this gorgeous meadow with flowers blooming and she was there next to me, giggling and cooing as we were looking up at that blue sky. And then the next moment the contraction hit and I was back pulled down into the bone crushing pain, bearing it. But this time I was sort of hovering above it, looking down. So I was both feeling it and also being aware of it. And then when the contraction subsided enough, I could return to the meadow. And this time she was six years old, <laughs> you know, crawling around me and pulling on my hair. And then boom, the contraction hits. And then the next moment I'm back in the meadow. And this time she's 14. And she's telling me stories. And the next moment it's raining, there's an umbrella and we're walking through. And so back and forth, that labor, I was in the meadow and then back in my body and then in the meadow and back in that body. And that meadow became my sovereign space until there was a moment of, of transition where there was no space between the contractions at all. And I just, it felt like a tunnel of fire opened up from under, under me. And the only way that I could get back to the meadow was if I went through the tunnel, through the fire, through the pain, mm. through the wound, i.e. through the womb <laughs> to push yeah. her through. And then the next moment, it was the most unbearable kind of consuming pain, but it was allowing myself to feel it, inhabit it and push, breathe and push through. And here's the thing about pushing. It's not something that you do. You have to wait until the, the urge comes and you push with the current. So it's almost like you're listening deeply to what is wanting to emerge through you. And then you push with it. You let the pain come, you let it sear you. And the next moment, of course, she's on my chest and she's landed there and we're together again. Like we were just in the meadow and now we're here. <laughs> It was birthing my daughter that taught me about that sovereign space inside of me, that we can access that even in the thick of the most terrible grief, the most horrendous kind of pain, that no matter what's happening around us, there's a place we can go inside of us that is eternal and internal, and we can make it how we wish to make it. It can be our own sovereign place of respite, and from that place, we can allow ourselves to to notice body, to notice pain, to be with it, to accompany it, to push with it so that we too can be rebirthed and emerged into what is wanting to be. You know, Megan, I've often thought about grief and transition because I was describing transition on that birthing table, how grief is a kind of transition that we are becoming something new in the grieving. You know, to, to lose, especially when we lose someone who we deeply love and fiercely love, it just shatters us. It's bone crushing in its own way. Like we'll never be the same and it's true. We'll never be the same. 
And so to allow ourselves to go through, not to bypass or numb or suffer, but to go through the wound is in a way to go through the womb, to allow ourselves to become something new on the other side. And in doing so, I feel like we discover that the person we love, who we've lost, that their love outlasts life, that their love just changes form. You know, when I lost my grandfather, I thought it was the end of the world. He was my pillar. He taught me the prayers. He taught me how to love. He was my warrior. And I was so angry when he died. And it was only until I realized, like, I was searching for him and searching for him, searching for him until I sat on that bench by that lake. And I imagined, like, what if he was already here and I could feel his hand close over mine? And I realized that this grieving process was just one long way of making him internal to me. And now I can close my eyes and I can say his prayer and I can hear his voice and I can feel the chocolate brown sweater on my cheek. When I used to hug him, I could feel that in an instant, even though it's been 15 years since he's died because he's part of me now. But I had to go through the pain. I had to be rebirthed and losing him on this earth in order to find him inside of my heart. Perhaps what this moment in history calls for is for all of us to be that brave, to allow ourselves to be rebirthed and remade again and again in the grief, knowing that if we inhabit it fully, if we do it from that sovereign place inside of us, that we become stronger, more resilient, more courageous, more imaginative, more loving than we've ever imagined that we could be. Yeah. And not not that that allowing that other side, that birthing process is about making anything better or making yourself better. I think sometimes we like we f- we frame resilience as like you didn't need that. You needed to like understand how strong you are. And again coming back to like my fangirl moments with you here is like you never sugarcoat this stuff. You talk about resilience and you talk about strength and you talk about birthing the world that we want bringing that into reality and existence. And you never let go of how hard it is to be here sometimes. It's so hard to be here and to be awake. You know, I I, I often, especially after my baby's award, I just, you know, I, I felt like I turned into a raw nerve. Like I've been fighting for racial social justice for 21 years now, but somehow after the babies were born, everything just hurt even more because I... You know, every loss was through their eyes. Every, you know, every new atrocity was the world that they were going to inherit. And I didn't know how to keep them safe in it. I didn't. And so I realized, like, I can't keep them safe. I can only make them resilient enough to face the world. And that means that my breathlessness was never a sign of my weakness. My breathlessness was a sign of my bravery, you know, to let yourself feel, to let yourself be awake. It's okay, my love, if it's hard sometimes. It's okay if you feel hopeless sometimes. I mean, I I came to understand that my hopelessness was more like, you know, a feeling that ebbs and flows, it comes and goes. It's like the moon. Sometimes it's wide and luminous and I'm so, I'm so hopeful. We're going to change the world. And other times it's like a new moon or a sliver. I, I'm, I can't even see hope at all. And yet what matters is not, not how hopeful or hopeless you feel. What matters, my love, is like the work that your hands do. How do your hands keep moving in the world? How do you keep laboring? How do you keep returning to wonder? How do you keep loving? And I, I, I took me a long time. And this really, Megan, it's since that I wrote this, since I wrote See No Stranger, did I discover this? Because I, I feel like the book is like this one long story of birthing the wise woman in me, you know, like until the very end. And I finally just like joy is the last chapter when my daughter's born. <laughs> it's like I finally understood that joy was, and now I'm understanding like, oh, <laughs> 
joy and pleasure. <laughs> like mm. I used to feel so guilty about my pleasure and about my joy that I would deny it to myself again and again. I used to grind my bones into the earth. I used to compare my own suffering with the people I was serving and I was never worthy enough to care for. I used to think that I had to make myself suffer in order to serve, right? To be breathless all the time because that meant I was awake all the time. <laughs> Not to let myself feel rest, you know, feel pleasure. And, and it's taken me really turning 40 and understanding that, oh, <laughs> if I'm going to allow myself to feel all the pain and the grief that my body can hold, then the only way I can make my body a container strong enough to continue to endure this for the next decades is if I, I allow that much pleasure in my body too. Like the and now it's like a new frontier. I'm like, oh, the deeper I experience pleasure in my body, like sensual pleasure, like holding the tea with the, the we were talking about the fire before we would get like the cozy fire and, and the warm tea. And I'm always, my, my children laugh at me because like I carry around a chocolate purse wherever I go that has at least four <laughs> bars of dark chocolate inside because it brings me so much pleasure. And I don't chew the chocolate. I put it on my, my tongue and I let it melt, you know, and I experience the whole bouquet of all the flavors, like wh whether it's sexual pleasure or sensual pleasure or the pleasure of music or poetry or beauty, just letting and letting your like letting yourself feel your body as you're feeling pleasure. Oh, that is not an escape. It's actually priming your body to be able to hold the grief too. They're like they're like two wells that carve each other out. You know, the deeper the pleasure, the deeper your ability to hold grief and vice versa. So I've come to understand that, like, you know, the labor for making a more just world, the labor for rebirthing this world, we may not see the fruits of our labor in our lifetime. We, not, we may not get to the point where the baby lands on the chest and all is well and done, right? But how do we stay in the labor when sometimes it's so painful? It's you go to the sovereign space, <laughs> you let in rest, you let in joy, you let in pleasure. And in doing so, I've discovered that for myself, laboring for a more just and more beautiful world with joy and with pleasure has become the meaning of my life. Mm. I love this, like both the, the personal and the communal parts of it, right? So the personal part being, there's so much pain that I'm looking at right now in my own life with this person's death or this illness or, or whatever it is we're carrying. And is there space for me to feel that and also let chocolate dissolve on my tongue <laughs> and know that I that I don't have to let go of my grief, right, in order to also notice the beauty of the world, yes. right? Because we're so often pitted, we're pitting those things against each other, one or the other, binaries against human life all the time. Yes. You can be sitting there in your grief or you can be experiencing the joy and sensual pleasure of the embodied world, but you can't do both at the same time, which is just such a reductive way of looking at things. But this is also like, this is how we can think about this personally, but this is also collectively. And I love that you brought in the bigger social justice work here that I think so many of us as activists, we keep our eyes on the terrible things so much. And so often it feels too important not to. Yeah. It feels disrespectful in some ways to close our eyes to the pain of the world. Mm. And there's, there's a line of yours that I really love we were talking about the conversation you had with with Jonathan Fields on the Good Life Project where you said you know I I 
I'm going to misquote it here, but I spent the last 20 years organizing my life around hate, and I want to spend the rest of, or the next 20 years organizing around love. Yes. And that's what I think of when you when you make this description is that the pain of the world is the pain of the world regardless. Yes. And what is our rest point that allows us to show up for it? Yes. On my desk here, I have a post-it and on it is breathe and push. <laughs> the mm. wisdom of the midwife, you know, she doesn't say, all right, push all the way. No, she says, <laughs> yeah. breathe, my love, and then push and then breathe again. You know, there's a it's a kind of cadence, a kind of rhythm mm. to sustain one's stamina through any long labor, the labor of raising a family, the labor of, you know, building a movement for justice or rebirthing a, a nation that you got to be breathing enough in order to make the push. And then once you do that enough, you realize that there's the, a breathe and the push and there's a push and the breathe. Like there's, it's a way of being that is coming from a place of, of love and I have to say, I mean, for most of my life, again, as, as a traditional activist with the bullhorn in the street, I would roll my eyes anytime someone said love was the answer on a stage. And yeah. it was it was really like, you know, laboring with, with these communities and realizing what was making them last in the face of unspeakable grief. And then, you know, becoming a, a mother myself and realizing that caring for my children, like empathy wasn't actually that useful to me that often because I could sit and my daughter would be crying and like I could sit and imagine what it would be like to be crying or I could wonder about why she was crying and then care for her and that empathy is a tool that comes and goes when I need it it's between the activism and the mothering that's where I came to a whole new definition of love it was mm. you know it was my mother you know opening her bag and feeding me doll and Joel on the birthing table <laughs> like feeding her baby while I was feeding mine and looking at my mother and realizing oh she has had the definition of love that I didn't realize all this time like love is more than a rush of feeling love is sweet labor fierce bloody imperfect life-giving a choice we make again and again and if love is labor then we have to harness all of our range of human emotions in that labor so Grief is the price of love. Joy is the gift of love. Anger is the force we harness to protect that which we love. Wonder is the act that returns us to love when we think we've reached our limit. And so if, if love is sweet labor for redefining what love is, then when we love beyond what evolution requires, that's when love takes on this revolutionary force. That's what I call revolutionary love. Mm. So revolutionary love is a choice to enter into labor for others, for our opponents, and for ourselves in order to transform the world around us. And once I came to that definition, Megan, I said, okay, <laughs> we're going to need people who continue to do the crisis response work and let me be in this space now where I'm giving people a framework, a moral compass to know how to last. What if we could build our movements out of revolutionary love? What if we could show up to our lives each day from a place of revolutionary love? What if we could change this country with the practice of revolutionary love as our culture, as our consciousness? And so that is the, the mission now that I have devoted the rest of my life to. Yeah. I love a good midrash, right? Like reclaiming the world, the word love from like the pink pastel, a little bit of grease on the lens to make everything all soft focus like that is such a diss to what love is yes 
right? Like it is so rude to make it this like fluffy pastel thing that can't like do anything for you except you help you bypass things. But like, I love the ferocity in this because like love is a ferocious force. It is much bigger and much more sustaining and much more important and necessary to all of life than the little tiny container that we put it in. And and we've heard this called, I've seen like revolutionary love is the call of our yeah. times. And we've heard this call for a thousand so many years, times. right? You know, so many times. Jesus to Abraham to Muhammad to Buddha to Mirabai, Guru Nanak, you know, see no stranger, Nakobedi, Nahi Bagana, I see no enemy, I see no stranger. We've heard this invitation again and again. You know, and and most recently with Dr. King's revolution of values and the strength to love with bell hooks, um, a black feminist imagining that the love ethic could be the foundation of every arena of our shared life. So we've heard this call. We you know, when did you first hear it? I heard it from my grandfather. Like, when did you first hear it? And now, like our very future as a nation, you know, will we birth a multiracial democracy that sees everyone as a dignified being like our very future as a species, like will we will we teach humanity how to live sustainably with the earth for the first time ever? Like our very future as a nation and as a, as a species depends on whether we can put the love ethic into practice on a scale we never had before. Mm-hmm. That's why I call the era that we live in an era of transition. Yeah. Bloody, it's convulsive, and yet it is pregnant with possibility. I believe we are the ones who are tasked to rebirth that world. And that each and every one of us has a role in the labor. Mm. This is true personally and collectively. I, I think one of the things that we also sometimes do is like, is we jump to the movement. Yes. Right. One of the things that I really appreciate in your book is you start in the personal intimate sphere. Mm. You start with personal grief. Mm. There's a training that I teach and one of the lessons is on uh, grief and social justice and how every single social justice movement has grief at its core. Mm. And that's the intimate, personal, life-dissolving grief. And I think that sometimes we forget that because it's so big and so painful. Yes. And you, that that ferocity and that braveness, like you walk into that personal, intimate, life-dissolving grief and stay there. Mm with yourself and with the people that you encounter. And that is that is something so unusual and so rare right now. And I think this is also a place where both of our works intersect. I'll quote you, right? You said, you see our solidarity is only as deep as our ability to love one another. And our ability to love one another is only as deep as our ability to weep with one another. Yes. And that shared grieving creates that deep solidarity. Yes. Any time in U.S. history when people who had no obvious reason to love one another came together to grieve, to weep, to lament, to cry together, they gave rise to new relationships, even great movements. We all lived through one such moment after the murder of George Floyd. It was a moment of collective grieving with Black people that I never thought I would see in my lifetime because many people felt like, okay, this was just like the 1960s or 1992. It was, and yet there was something we'd never seen before. We saw white people 
forming a wall in front of black people kneeling in the street in front of an army of police officers. This was a multiracial uprising for black lives, the largest that human history has ever seen. And it came from this deep and profound, intimate, life dissolving, as you describe it, moment of grieving with, of collective grieving. And what I've discovered is that you don't need to know people in order to grieve with them. You grieve with them in order to know them. And there's a long way we still must go. There are many mistakes made since that summer of 2020. But one thing that I have seen as I travel the country and go from city to city is how many people who did show up with their full hearts and grieve are still staying awake and paying attention and creating spaces and conversations and projects to stay in relationship to build deep solidarity with black people, indigenous people and other people of color. And that all came from that courageous choice to individual choice, right, to show up and to let something that was so painful into your heart. I think that we're living in a time where we have to metabolize grief on a scale that no other generation before us has had to, and that we'll soon be entering a, an era where we already are, right? Where billions watch millions die. And how many people have we lost from COVID already, let alone the racial reckonings and the wars and the climate catastrophes. And so our choice is an individual choice for each of us. Do we turn away? Do we say, I'm not strong enough to look at it, to bear it. Do we go numb? Do we escape? Do we retreat into whatever privilege we have? Or do we turn and face it and know it's it, it's okay if you don't have any right words? There are no right words in the face of this much grief, grief on this scale. It feels like it opens up this massive black hole that sucks in any language or sense or meaning. There's no making sense of it, no right words. There's no fixing grief. There's only bearing it. And we can only bear it if we do so together, like it's the only way we survive it. And anytime we survive it, choose to survive it collectively. Then remember, I said grief and transition are linked, right? We, may, we are made anew. We birth new solidarities, new possibilities, new, new movements that might expand the circle of who counts as one of us so that your child is mine. And you look at my child and say, my child is yours. I mean, that is what it looks like to have a culture, a society that sees no stranger. And I believe that being awake to this much grief and allowing ourselves to love each other through it is how we birth that future. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City 
Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. Before we get back to my conversation with Valerie, I want to talk with you about getting help inside grief, no matter what that grief is. You know how people say, like, maybe you should talk to somebody? Well, finding skilled grief support is hard, no matter what kind of grief it is. We get a lot of messages from people wanting to speak to me directly. And we used to say no, because I did not have time. But now we are saying yes. Yes, for a limited time and for a limited number of people, like not yes to everybody, but yes, with limits. So to apply for one of the grief consultation spots on my calendar, send us an email at support at refugingrief.com or use the contact form at megandevine.co. If individual work with me is out of reach or that waiting list gets too long and you don't want to wait that long, you can join me each and every month for a live Q&A at patreon.com backslash megandevine. Now, both options, working with me individually and working with me in that larger communal Q&A, details for both of those options are in the show notes. All right, back to my conversation with best-selling author Valerie Kaur. What is it, do you think, that makes us look at our own pain or somebody else's pain, somebody else's grief, and consciously or unconsciously say, like, not today, not feeling this, don't want to see you, don't want to like what it's too much is that (laughs) it's too much too much and i i want to say i you remember i said like the the beginning of love you know the first act of love is not necessarily empathy or compassion because if you read the news and look at all the atrocities every day and force yourself to imagine and feel in your body what that person is feeling all of the time you will have what's called empathy fatigue and you will shut down (laughs) Right? Mm-hmm. So empathy will come and go and it's okay because the, the founding act of orienting to life through love is wonder. Can I wonder about that person and their experience, that community? Can I wonder mm-hmm. about my relationship to them and what that looks like in my own hometown? Can I wonder about myself you know, and what I might do in response to them? And then 
maybe empathy comes later, but it's, it's wondering, you know, it's keeping yourself open to wonder and Mm -hmm. it's giving yourself time to breathe, to rest, to let in pleasure and then returning to the labor. There's that, that's the cadence again, right? I think so many people feel like I'm either all in or not in at all. And so they'll just shut themselves down. They won't read the news at all. They won't show up to the local vigils Mm -hmm. or the protests or the marches because it's just all too much, but it's the breathe and push and then breathe again. It's, it's if we're breathing enough, if we're letting enough breath in our bodies, can we show up and continue to wonder and continue to labor and continue to be in relationship with other others. And so, I mean, that, I mean, I'm talking to you at, you know, spring break and we just, I took my children to the Grand Canyon for the first time, <laughs> family road trip. And I had to leave my phone behind my, my mother had to physically hide my phone in a place where I would not find it. <laughs> Because she knew that if I was just reading the news every day, I would just, I'd be continuing the push. Like I wouldn't know how to just drop in and breathe and sitting Mm -hmm. on the edge of that, the South Rim and looking out at the canyon, all those layers of rock. It was like looking into deep time. And when you think about time in terms of like cosmological time, like billions of years it took to form that canyon. And then it puts a kind of breath in your body it allows you to return to that sovereign space inside of you that always is, right? That resources you then so that I can come back on a Monday morning and have this conversation about grieving with you and show up to the community who needs me this afternoon. You know, like it's, <laughs> I often think of it of, of as like liberating the, the wisdom of the midwife. Like we say soldier on, mm-hmm. even though like a, a subset of human beings have had the experience of gold going to war, but we say soldier on, like fight on. We know what it's like to be that warrior. And I come from a warrior people, so I often use those metaphors, but the wisdom of the midwife, she says, breathe and push. Like, you know, if we liberated that and imagine what it might be for all of us to be vessels for love like that, then that I think between the warrioring and the birthing, <laughs> we have the metaphors <laughs> we need to- We have up. all the metaphors we need. There's something that you said in there about, you know, as you're describing what it takes to feel with other people, to allow that. Uh, one of my old teachers used to say, poignancy is kinship, mm. right? That when we look at somebody else's grief, somebody else's loss, somebody else's story, we start to feel things. Yeah. And in a culture that is afraid of emotion, that is um, grief phobic or grief illiterate, where it's not safe to have those feelings, right? I, I think that there's some part of us that says, like, this is too big and I don't know what to do with it. And it is all or nothing. Yeah. And what I love and what you just described is like the, it's not that you need to be fully prepared for the pain of the world and know what to do with it before you can engage with it, but that that we come back to that wonder as our orientation. And that includes wonder for yourself. Yeah. What happens for me? when I open to this pain in front of me, whether that's when I'm sitting with my friend whose sister just died, or I am sitting in a group of people who just experienced a school shooting in their community, like wondering where do I feel that I can't hold my gaze on this anymore and can I respect that for myself? Because we just have that like all or nothing thing and so many people are going to choose nothing yes. because we don't have the tools to deal with all. That's so good. It's so good. I mean, the school shootings are, you know, I talked about becoming a raw nerve after the children were born. Mm-hmm. And then the school shootings have, have been very difficult for me. Like after we just went through another one, the the one in Ovalde, Texas mm-hmm. was particularly hard for me because my children are the 
ages of these children and it was so graphic and so monstrous and so massive and it felt like a primal scream in me that just wouldn't go off you know and i had to notice that my body was activated like my throat was closing my chest was constricted how was i supposed to go downstairs and give my children dinner if i couldn't even you know and i and i was like oh this is not the time to open my phone and read about every single one of those children like i i have to breathe first i have to notice what's happening in my body i have to go down with my babies i have to feed them i have to, we have a practice called dance time every night where we play a song and even when i do not feel like dancing there's no reason to dance my children will play the song. We don't talk about Bru. No, no, no. no. Like the hundredth time. <laughs> Which you can't not dance to. <laughs> they, yeah, right. Thank God it's a good song because then we we start dancing and pretty soon they're laughing and then I'm laughing. And I'm like, on nights of such horror, I can still remember when I feel hopeless. You can't even see it in the sky. Mm. I can feel joy enter my body when I dance with my children. And it's like it's like a kind of sparkling energy that goes from the earth up into my heart. You know, in, in the Sikh faith, we call it Jardikala. Jardikala, ever rising joy, even in darkness. Mm. Ever rising spirits, even in the thick of the labor. Like, can you, the world doesn't give it to you and you can't force joy, but mm. you can only create the conditions to let joy come and seize you. And if I'm not creating those conditions, if I'm not breathing, you know, if I'm not, I'm not finding myself on that yoga mat or turning up that song with my children, I'm not creating any any condition for joy to find me. Sometimes it doesn't come, but more often than not, it will find me. And it's like that sparkling energy. And then that's my breathe, right? Then I can, okay, the kids are asleep. All right, I can open, I can read. I can look into the faces of these children who are no more. I can wonder about them and I can wonder about what my particular role is in response to this tragedy at this moment. Not all the roles. You don't play all the roles. Mm. <laughs> you play your role and you'll know your role by your sphere of influence, your particular talents and what your body is ready to do in that moment. Mm. That's the showing up. That's the showing up. There, there really is like it's, it's peristaltic motion right? Contract, expand, contract, expand. And in order to be able to show up to our own pain, the pain of the people closest to us, the pain of the world, we have to find those places where there is an expansive in-breath. Yes. I find, yeah. I find that beginning and ending my day with breath mm. helps me show up to whatever the day might present. Mm. In the mornings, we started to do this during the pandemic because we didn't know, especially the beginning, we didn't know what <laughs> the future would bring. And so I would hold my children as we woke up in the morning and say, I get to be alive. I get to be alive today. I get to be alive today with you. That's how we still begin our days. Just this morning, my daughter, mm. I, get to be alive. I get to be alive today. I get to be alive today with you. Oh, each day a surprise. Mm a gratitude, a gift. And then we end our day with this, you know, I I talked about my grandfather dying. He, he died this saintly death. It was a sage death. It was like he looked at everyone around his deathbed and smiled at them and sighed and died. It was a masterful death. And I realized that if I wanted to be that courageous in the face of death, then I had to practice being that courageous in my life. And so every night I practice 
dying the way that my grandfather died. Mm. I'll say, what was the hardest part of this day? How did you get through it? Notice what that feels like in your body. What was the most joyful part of this day? Notice what that feels like in your body. What are you most grateful for in this day? Notice what that feels like in your body. And imagine that this day is an entire lifetime with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Every lifetime, something that's hard. Every lifetime, something that's joyful. Every lifetime, something to be grateful for. And now, my love, are you ready to let go of this lifetime? Are you ready to die a kind of death? And sometimes I still have to think five more thoughts, but <laughs> then I get to the point where, okay, I practice sighing and I practice dying as my grandfather did. Hmm. You know, Megan, doing that, it's been 15 years now doing that. <laughs> waking, you know, and, and dying, it, like, dying every night and then waking up like this lifetime is a complete surprise. You know, it's a new lifetime, <laughs> it's a new day. <laughs> It has really helped me live into that idea that the labor might go, you know, past our lives that, you know, if we show up each day with love, love for others, love for myself, with breath, with pleasure, with joy, then showing up with the grief and showing up to the anger and showing up to the hard places, it's sustainable because I'm using all parts of my heart. Mm. I have a note in my notes here the end of it after this quote says, this is probably my favorite line of hers so far. And it's what you just said, right? You must keep the borders of your heart porous in order to love well. Yeah. And that's really what you just described there is like, how do we keep ourselves porous and open to all of it? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, all of this work can feel so heavy and i feel like so much of what you've shared with us today is like the heavy lifting of this like the the heavy lifting of how hard this can be whether you're keeping your eyes open to your own pain or you're keeping your eyes and your heart open to the pain of the world like it is so heavy mm -hmm. and in the book you introduce the concept of squad care mm. can you tell us what that means squad care this is melissa harris perry's terms you know black thinker who has been a big sister in my life for many years. And she was really, you know, furthering this tradition among black feminists of teaching people how to care for themselves. Like the movement cannot happen on our backs or over our dead bodies. We need to be caring for ourselves as we care for the world. And self-care is a term that doesn't necessarily capture what we need. You know, when we're sitting at the edge of that black hole, you know, giving myself extra yoga sessions and lattes are not going to say it's not going to save me <laughs> like and I can't do it by myself I need someone holding my hand I need a home that is allowing that grief to be held I need to be part of a workplace in a community in a city in a country in a culture that is supporting the kind of care that I need you know just like we don't go to battle alone and we don't give birth alone we need midwives by our side saying breathe mm. and then push. And then we need to be someone else's midwife. So Melissa's idea of squad care was that there's always a handful of, of people, usually for me, it's sisters, who we have each other's back for life. You know, I was born on Valentine's Day. <laughs> That's how I got my very non-Indian name. 
And for a long time, I railed against Valentine's Day precisely for the reasons mm-hmm. you named earlier, the, the pink and the, the hearts and the roses, and that's all love is. And my, now I'm reclaiming, just like I'm reclaiming love as revolutionary love, I'm reclaiming Valentine's Day as a day to reclaim <laughs> love, right? And so um, for this year, I brought my sisters together in a, in a sisterhood soiree. And we sat around a table and had this gorgeous brunch together. We hadn't gathered together. It wasn't safe enough to gather for so many years. And as I looked around the table, I realized that I knew everyone at that table for 20 years or more. Mm. And that if there was anyone that was defined as my squad, <laughs> you know, to be by my side, not just through the, the, the joyful and easy moments, but through the grief, the griefing, the grief and the grieving, um, it was the women at this table. I know not everyone has that, but I do believe that cultivating that kind of circle of care around you is available to all of us, that there's always love available to all of us if we just have the courage to open, to lift our gaze, open our eyes and say what it is that we need and offer our hearts to others. So that kind of squad care, community care, sisterhood, you know, that sovereign place inside of me, that wise woman inside of me, that lives in that sovereign place. She only gets stronger when she's in the presence of other wise women. So may we imagine that there were networks all across the country of those of that kind of, of caring in a way that's the movement that we're building with revolutionary love to invite people into creating their own pockets of revolutionary love as part of the larger movement. Mm. Those communities, those friendships, those connections happen when you are allowed to tell the truth about your own experience and have that witnessed and heard and supported. Yes. Earlier in the season, I had a, actually it was last season, had a conversation with Soraya Shamali, the author of Rage Becomes Her, and I I adore her. And we were having this same conversation about like the people you can be angry with. Yes. Right. And she she said something like, you know, the the closest, most powerful, most supportive relationships and friendships in my life, I got those because we were angry together. Mm. And the echoes that I hear in your work here are, you know, we don't get these pockets, we don't get these squads, we don't get the communities that we need around us and we want to offer to the world by pretending that we feel other than what we feel, by pretending that we can keep pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing, like that there is a, a communal visibility and witnessing that is at the core of our personal revolutions to create this love-filled, wonder-filled, (laughs) wonder-founded world, and also the world that we want to birth into being, right? That all of it has to be at this party and acceptable. Yes. Oh, so so beautifully said. I've been on the road the last few months, you know, after Mm. coming out of several years of, of lockdown and no travel, I've been on the road and it was every city I go to, I think like, okay, this is an event where I'll be giving the keynote and then having the Q&A. And then it transforms (laughs) into this container where people are standing up at the mic and telling their stories with their tears and their struggles and their open hearts. And we're crying with each other. We're hugging each other. And I'm realizing that there are these containers for collective grieving Mm. and these containers, like these safe containers for rage. And in that space at the end of the night, people like it's a joyful space <laughs> yeah. because there is a relief, a catharsis and knowing that you're not alone. 
and our culture doesn't, you know, we pers- we we tend our, we live in a culture that tends to look at grief, despair, rage as individual maladies instead of collective experiences that we're all surviving together. And so to to find to be able to create those spaces in our movement where people are safe enough to be vulnerable, to be courageous, and then to feel with each other and to deepen bonds with each other, that's the fabric for any kind of action, any kind of solidarity. I, I, I say that shallow solidarity is rooted in the logic of exchange. I show up mm. for you, so you show up for me. But deep solidarity is rooted in love. I show up for you because you are my sister, you are my brother, you are my sibling, you're my beloved, and we can only get there. We can only be able to look upon the faces of people we don't know and say, sister, brother, sibling, you are a part of me I do not yet know. We can only get there if we open our hearts and lead with that kind of wonder and let it take us to that space where all the rest flows. Mm. And we have so many opportunities to do that, right? On the on the everyday little things and on the bigger things and then on the global things. Like there's so many opportunities to practice that kind of love that you describe. It's true. And then I started, we started the conversation with me telling you about the song. We, we, it's now called Wonder Baby. It's going to be a book that comes out next year. Oh, fun. <laughs> it's like, yes, the movement involves it as to begin even with our children. And it's ever since that song for my, for my daughter, you're a part of me, I don't yet know. It has become my mantra when I move through the world, when I look at people's faces on the street or on the screen. When I go to the Grand Canyon and look at the rock, you're a part of me, I don't yet yet. When I sit at the foot of the great sequoias, you're a part of me, I don't yet know. Like, If you're taking anything away from this conversation, know that we can transform the world from the inside out. We can transform the world from the inside out and it can begin with the simple refrain in your mind, you are a part of me, I do not yet know. Allow yourself to say that, hear that, whether you're in a difficult conversation or just moving through the grocery store or your child is in your arms and notice what happens next. Notice what you see, notice what you wanna do when that starting point place inside of you is one of love. There's lots of love in this episode. <laughs> now you've brought up hope a few times in our conversation. So the question that I ask everybody at the end of our time together, knowing what you know, and living what you've lived both personally, ancestrally, and collectively. What does hope look like for you? That my daughter's daughter's daughter will be able to take her children to the Grand Canyon, sit at the edge of that rim and look out and feel the awe that I felt and know that she will think of me as her ancestor, and that what she will inherit from this time of violence and transition is not my trauma, but my bravery and my joy. Thank you for that. Oh, I love you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for feeling that with me. (laughs) Yeah, I felt I felt that one. Yeah. Thank you. So we're going to link to your website and your book and your work. And all of that includes ways to take this conversation, take this work out into the world. Yes. But is there anything else that you want people to know or things, 
places you want them to find you. Any last parting words, basically? There's one more thing that gives me hope. And it's a very practical thing. Mm, I love practical hope. <laughs> There's a researcher, Chenoweth and her team out of Harvard University, who have researched past social movements. And what, what they discovered was that when 3.5% of a population engages in a shared nonviolent action, it creates change throughout an entire society. No movement has failed once it has reached that threshold of 3.5%. That's 11 million people in the United States. 11 million people to create a revolution. Revolutions happen not just in the big grand public moments, but in the spaces where people are coming together to inhabit a new way of being, a new way of seeing. That's the kind of revolution that we are after. That's the kind of revolution we are building. And so if you count yourself among the 11 million, welcome to the revolution. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. Each week, I leave you with some questions to carry with you until we meet again. 
Now you will notice that I did not do my usual closing in which I ask our guest where you can find them. But Valerie ended on such a powerful note, I didn't want to add anything. I just wanted it to end there. (laughs) This conversation, I know I've said it a few times now, but it was everything I needed and didn't know I needed. At the end of our official, like official podcast conversation, Valerie said, hey, do you want to be friends? And let me tell you, I've never said yes so fast in my entire life. (laughs) And there's one thing that Valerie said in our time together that brought me to tears when she said it. In fact, I needed a break when she said it. And it's brought me to tears every single time I've copied those words down and pasted them somewhere else, like on post-it notes or tucked them into projects that I'm working on. When I asked Valerie about hope, she talked about her daughter. She said, I hope that she will inherit from this time of violence and transition, not my trauma, but my bravery and my joy. I just, (laughs) I hope what she will inherit from this time of violence and transition is not my trauma, but my bravery and my joy. It is safe to say that I've carried those words around with me ever since the day we met. Valerie, if you are listening, thank you for that and for everything. How about you, friends? What stuck with you from this conversation? What do you want the people you love to inherit from this time? Everybody's going to take something different from today's show, but I do hope you found something to hold on to. If you want to let me know how today's show felt for you or you have thoughts on what we covered, let me know. Tag at Refuge in Grief on all the social platforms so I can hear how this conversation affected you. You can follow the show at It's Okay Pod on TikTok and Refuge and Grief everywhere else to see videos from the show. Use the hashtag It's Okay Pod on all the platforms so not only can I find you, but other people can too. None of us are entirely okay, and it's time we start talking about that together. Yeah? It's okay that you're not okay. You're in good company. That's it for this week. Remember to subscribe to the show and leave a review. Your reviews help make the show easier to find for people who would find it beautiful and useful. Yeah, coming up next week, everybody, Maggie Smith. Yes, that Maggie Smith, the author of Good Bones and You Could Make This Place Beautiful. You know her even if you're not sure of her because I bet that you've read her words. Follow the show on your favorite platform so that you do not miss an episode. You want more on these topics? Grief is everywhere. As my dad says, daily life is full of everyday grief that we don't call grief, and all of this season's guests are talking about grief in some way. Learning how to have these conversations without platitudes or dismissive statements, that's an important skill for everybody. Get help to have those conversations with trainings, professional resources, some cute videos, and my best-selling book, It's Okay That You're Not Okay, at megandevine.co. It's Okay That You're Not Okay, the podcast is written and produced by me, Megan Devine. Executive producer is Amy Brown, co-produced by Elizabeth Fazio, logistical and social media support from Micah, post-production and editing by Houston Tilly, music provided by Wavecrush, and background noise, as stated, from the jackhammers going off where Valerie lives.
Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable.